The following podcast is provided by truthforsaints.com, a resource for cults, religions, and church history. Well, hello and welcome to the Truth for Saints podcast, where we look to provide a Bible-based perspective regarding world religions, cults, sects, denominations, and philosophical worldviews, all for the purpose of equipping the saints of God for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ, as it says in Ephesians 4.12. Welcome, everybody, and uh, my name is Andrew Hamilton. I'm here with uh, Dr. Ken Hochstetter, a Bible-believing professor of philosophy, author, speaker, and a good friend and brother in the Lord for 25 years. Welcome, Ken. Hi, thanks. Glad to be here. In going back through what we've covered the last few weeks, we started with a bit of a gospel overview and just sort of an introduction of who we are, uh, what our testimonies were. The second podcast episode revolved around the structure of the Bible, and that was a very high-level view where we just basically broke it down into its various categories, then went into an overview of what truth is, and we sought to answer that Uh, question of Pontius Pilate, uh, as we find in the Gospel of Luke, what is truth? Ken, would you like to give us a quick recap of the definition of truth? Uh, Is there absolute truth? Is there such a thing as subjective truth? Or what or who is the ultimate source of truth? That sort of thing. Yeah. So what we talked about last time is about the definition. It's, I don't know if you would want to say so much a a definition of truth as as really just saying what it is. Um, Truth is so basic, I guess it would be really hard to define. But um, I think truth is just what we all think it is, that a, a belief or claim or proposition is true if the world is the way the proposition says it is. So if I say uh, that water is composed of, in part, hydrogen and, uh, say, carbon, I would be saying something false because it's not composed of carbon. Well, it has hydrogen, it does not have any carbon. And so what I've said is false. Um, water is composed of hydrogen and oxygen. And so when I say water, water is H2O, I've said something true because that's the way the world is. And it's the same with anything. If I say God exists and there really is such a being, what I've said is true. If there is no such being, what I've said is false in spite of my sincere belief otherwise. As far as the absolute subjective, it seems to me, um, and I think you would agree after reflection that it comes in both categories, but in saying that some claims are subjectively true, that is those that are properly subjectively true. So a claim like God exists couldn't possibly be subjectively true, given that for a proposition or belief to be subjectively true means just by having the belief, it turns out to be true. But just by having the belief that God exists, for example, that doesn't turn out to be true. But something like chocolate's my favorite flavored ice cream. Well, just my me believing that, it turns out to be true. And so that's the sort of thing that's subjective. Beliefs that are, say, about my tastes. Um, sure. But if I make a claim about or have a belief about something outside of myself, like the existence of God or the structure of uh, matter or um, what's the nature of God or whether the Bible's reliable, those sorts of things are not up to me to be true or false, and therefore they're objective and in some cases, absolute, where the truth value never changes, such as 2 plus 2 equals 4. Mm-hmm. 
Well, ultimately, what we're looking to do is provide supporting information for a book that uh, that you're writing called Thinking About Christianity. Uh, why, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the book? I know we talked a bit about it last week, but just remind us once again, uh, perhaps the purpose that you had in writing it and, and uh, talk a little bit about the areas uh, that you're going to be covering in this book. Okay. The book started with lecture notes. I compiled um, notes on philosophical theology, which covers topics like the Trinity, the incarnation, attributes of God. And I took what sophisticated philosophers are saying in their philosophical writings, intending to be writing to philosophers, and I wanted to make that same material accessible to the everyday Christian who likes to think about these things, who should be thinking about these things. And so I basically had tailored my lecture notes and gave several studies, uh, Bible studies and lectures to Christians, helping them to think a little more deeply about the nature of God, the Trinity, and so on. And that then led me to thinking, based on comments that my audience gave me, to maybe write a book and make it more widely accessible. And so that's the idea of the book, to take philosophical theology and make it accessible to the average Christian. So again, that would cover topics such as, and this is chapter one, thinking about the attributes of God. What does it mean to be omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly good? Then I move into the nature of the Trinity. We Christians think that God is a Trinity, but how should we think about the Trinity? How can we make sense of that? The third one is the incarnation. We all accept that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became a human, but how is that possible? How should we think about that? Um, I then move into the atonement. The heart of Christianity, of course, is that Jesus became incarnate and then atoned for our sins and rose from the dead. So we all accept that, and we have our rough understanding of uh, the atonement. Typically, it's substitutionary atonement. And I talk about different views of the atonement and how we might want to think more deeply about that. I then go into some, not so much philosophical theology, but just more challenges to Christianity. Uh, The problem of evil. Is evil compatible with Christian thinking? And then finally into Christian exclusivism. Christianity is and claims to be an exclusive religion. That is, Jesus is the only way to salvation. So I talk a bit about that. Um... Then we go into the last two chapters, chapter 7 and 8, actually your chapters, thinking about the Bible, which we're we're breaking up into two, and I can let you talk about those. Sure. Well, for us, as Bible-believing Christians, the Bible is the ultimate authority. It's the ultimate authority for the church, uh, and it's the ultimate authority for us as individuals, uh, whereby we hear from Almighty God through the pages of Scripture. So therefore, our attitude in our position towards this great book, they, they need to be correct attitudes, and they need, our, our position needs to be a healthy position towards God's Word. And, and in these times and in these days, uh, the Word of God is fully and completely under attack. But of course, that's nothing new. It, it has been for quite a long time. So for today, I thought we might continue a bit with the Bible. Uh, the process of canonization of Scripture. How did we of the New Testament? I should say. How did this collection of books come together in one sort of complete New Testament? How did that happen? What was the process which brought that to pass? 
Right. So the canon of scripture, let's let's examine the process by which some of these books written over the course of 1600 years were deemed to be God-inspired scriptures, and other books written during the same time were not considered inspired. There might be a, a couple of things that you've heard of. Maybe there are uh, books that you've heard of which are called pseudepigrapha or perhaps apocrypha. A lot of these books are books that, that might bear some importance and some antiquity, but they're not necessarily scripture. Well, let's take a look at a few of these and let's take a look at the process to see which is which, which are actually inspired books and which and which books didn't quite make the, the cut, if you will. Why is it that they're considered uh, not inspired words? Let's take a look at why they're not considered scripture. Can I cut in and interject real quick? Go ahead. I just, an important distinction which you may have made, uh, but I want to emphasize is, and you kind of just made it, that there's a difference between calling a written work or spoken word, um, inspired on the one hand and not on the other. So inspired versus not inspired on the one hand. And on the other hand, true or false. So a, a article, a book, a spoken word might very well be something that's true. And as you just said, it might very well be something important. And so in calling a body of work inspired versus not, you're not commenting on its truth importance, reliability, accuracy, right. historicity. You're simply saying it wasn't God doing it. Exactly. Um, it, it, it came from man, but man can discover and write truth. Uh, and so I just wanted to emphasize that, that what you're talking about is not true or false, but inspired versus not. Authoritative to, to live our life by as believers versus not. Yes, and that, that, that term, basically inspired, takes on two different meanings, like you mentioned. Uh, there are inspired authors or, or inspirational authors and inspirational speakers, if you will. But what we're talking about is God-inspired, and that word inspired means literally God-breathed. It's not that God motivated men in such a way that, that they just really felt great and they just uh, decided to write these words that came through them, but they were literally God-breathed words. Uh, and that's what the idea behind Scripture is. Which, which of these written works are God-breathed and which of them are perhaps inspired of men or were, were constructed of men? So this process basically is referred to as the canonization process. And contrary to popular belief, the, the books that are in the Bible, the canon, that is, uh, weren't assigned uh, their role by a committee of scholars or churchmen. Uh, I know you've probably heard that, Ken, but that, that a lot of people are like, well, why didn't, th why didn't, uh, what happened is we had this giant council and a lot of people got together and decided what went in the Bible and what didn't. Why is this book not in there and, the, and, and yet the other book is in there and that sort of thing. I've even had a professor, I, I, Bethany College out of Northern California. I don't even know if they're even still around anymore. I think it was an Assembly of God College, Assembly of God, uh, yeah, Bible College. They had a campus in Las Vegas. And I went to, a, I, I took a course there, uh, the Pauline epistle, basically on the Pauline epistles. It was uh, uh, basic, basically about the Apostle Paul and his writings, so to speak. And this uh, doctorate of theology from Berkeley, of all places, great, great guy for the Assembly of God to have 
yeah. uh, teaching at their school. Uh, anyhow, a complete mess. I would go one step further and say the assembly of assemblies of God also, um, it, it makes perfect sense to me how that could get through. But anyhow, here we are learning from this, from this particular liberal pseudo scholar that many of the books that we're reading are not truly inspired because a group of people decided that some should go in and some should. Now he has a doctorate in theology and doesn't realize the process does not work that way at all. This process uh, took place across the Christian world. Hundreds and hundreds of bishops, uh, overseers, who were basically overseers of many churches within a kind of metropolitan area, not bishops as like Roman Catholic bishops as you see today, but these were overseers of a whole metropolitan area and it spanned nearly 400 years. These men, over the course of time, uh, were able to demonstrate or to show which of these writings were received as scripture uh, and which weren't. So what happened over the course of this of the first 400 years of the church is the canon of scripture was more uncovered or discovered and not determined. And there's a big difference there. So the word canon itself, basically, in case you're wondering about this, it basically just means rule or principle. And it was used to describe a collection of books that met consistent, uh, trusted criterion. For, for the Christian Bible, we speak of one canon of scripture, but uh, the entire Old Testament collection was already a part of this canon, even at the time of Jesus' ministry, uh, even before there ever was a New Testament. So uh, this is why you know some refer to the Old Testament as the Hebrew canon, as its uh, original manuscripts were written in ancient Hebrew. Uh, the last written work considered to be scripture by the Jewish people was the prophetic writing of Malachi, who was one of the uh, minor prophets I talked about when we discussed the um, structure of scripture a couple weeks ago. But basically, it was directed towards a post the, the post-exilic Jews uh, of Judea. Basically, it was about 438 B.C., right around there, 4, 438, 440 B.C. Um, and what followed thereafter is considered by some to be that period of 400 years uh, of silence. And I talked about that as the intertestamental period. Uh, but it was 400 years of silence where scripture ceased. Uh, we talked about God breathed scripture. That was the last God breathed work as seen by the Jewish people. And we wouldn't see another work, uh, from the Lord until the arrival of, uh, uh until his arrival, until the visitation of of Jerusalem, of Judea itself, and in the writings of, of the apostles that uh, would, would come after. In fact, the book of Matthew was, was perhaps the oldest of all writings. Uh, some, some date Mark a bit older, but uh, I, I tend to go with a conservative uh, mindset that uh, Matthew, I think, is dated around 40 AD as one of the oldest books. So what we had in this time, though, is we had Jewish scribes. They called they were called scribes basically because they took on the work of meticulously copying the Hebrew scriptures and lecturing on them in, in synagogue life. Now, of course, that synagogue life uh, actually began to develop during that 400 years of supposed silence during that intertestamental period. Uh, when all of Jewish life and liturgy began to take on a whole different structure, synagogue life began to emerge. And of course, it was in full swing by the time that uh, we, we pick up with Jesus and the apostles. Uh, and so the scribes would, would be the ones responsible for copying the Hebrew scriptures. 
and uh, oftentimes they might be uh, called on to lecture as well. Uh, Because of the role of scribes, Jesus and his disciples inherited and worked with a fully formed Hebrew canon uh, when learning, uh, teaching, and preaching. And that's the interesting thing. We, We can see that Jesus and the apostles quoted regularly throughout Scripture uh, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that come, that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That is Jesus quoting Old Testament scripture. Yeah, yeah something else very interesting. Jesus um, would often do this, and you know this as well as I do, but the audience may not, that the at least the scholars of the day and many of the Jewish people actually memorized much of the Old Testament. And so all you would have to do is quote the beginning of a certain passage mm. and the whole, the rest of it would just come to mind. Well, Jesus, we see frequently, would just say something in one of the verses and the rest would flow. And we sometimes don't know what's going on unless we look more carefully. Mm. When he's on the cross, he quotes, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Correct. From the Psalms, which carried, which described the crucifixion. Correct. And it, I, I think that that's an excellent, uh, that's an excellent point that you make, Kim, because that scripture uh, it has led to so many bizarre beliefs about Jesus. Now, yes. and if you look at the rest of Psalm 22, it is like a snapshot, prophetic, a photographic snapshot of what is taking place around him. I, uh, strong bowls of Bashan have, have encircled me. They cast lots for my clothing. They they walk by and they, they, they shoot out the lower lip and say, if God, it, it, why doesn't God save him? That sort of thing. I mean, really, if you look at Psalm 22, it describes Jesus on the cross. That would have been written about almost a thousand years before that took place. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. yet what Jesus was doing is in stating, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Even on the cross, he was pointing out to them what was taking place so that those Jewish people would know to fill in the rest of the psalm from there and would know. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I agree. Sorry to cut you off, but Jesus did this regularly. He did this with Nicodemus. He did this with the Sadducees when arguing about the resurrection. Um, He did it throughout where he would quote the Old Testament canon because he accepted it. He knew which parts of the canon were accepted by which people. For example, when debating with the Sadducees, he didn't quote scriptures that they rejected because as the Sadducees didn't accept all of the Old Testament canon, whereas the Pharisees did. Correct. But when Jesus was debating with the Sadducees, he took scripture that they accepted to try to prove, for example, the resurrection, mm-hmm. uh, quoting Exodus 3, 6, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, that's right. So uh, what, what we have is a fully formed Hebrew canon. Well, that doesn't mean that there weren't books that, that the Jewish people uh, that, that were floating around at that time that the Jewish people considered important. There, there are books that, that were considered important, but were not considered scripture. Uh, one of these is the book of Maccabees, 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Now, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, well, actually, I think it's 1st to 4 Maccabees. I think there's four books of Maccabees. is a great historical book for what actually happened in that intertestamental period. The Jewish people do not consider those to be scripture. In fact, the only organization that considers them to be scripture at this point would be the, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and I'm not sure if the Orthodox, I don't think the, the Greek Orthodox Church does or the Orthodox churches do, I, but I, I know for a fact that the Catholics do. And so what you have with uh, Maccabees 
is a great historical work. It's also a picture in there of Antiochus Epiphanes, who, who's a prototype of what the Antichrist will be. Antiochus Epiphanes goes into the temple and sacrifices a pig on the altar, and that is uh, alluded to, it, close to that anyways, very close to that. It You, you see all of the uh, prophetic scriptures that talk about the Antichrist in the final days will go into the temple, and the, uh, the desolation of abomination will be there, uh, and he will desecrate that that area, and 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 that's that's all hell breaks loose. So, I say that literally, all hell breaks loose on, loose on earth. So, uh, the Book of Wisdom, Tobit, Baruch, Judith, and First and Second Ezra's. To, there are a few of those. I won't go into all of them, but uh, there's quite a few books that uh, that are considered historical works, but not considered scripture, uh, because they were never considered uh, canon. You know, any any good. Jewish teacher worth the salt like Jesus or the Apostle Paul or any of the other apostles would not cite from these uh, nor include such works in their inspired collection. So Jesus, the apostles, and uh, the uh, second, third generation church fathers really only quoted from the 39 books now included in the Old Testament. It's for this reason uh, that the fourth century discoverers or the uncoverers of the canon, uh, of the complete canon, followed suit. That's why they basically said, here are the 39 books of the Old Covenant of the Old Testament. And they did call it a covenant. Many of those older fathers did call it a covenant. It wasn't until Latin came into play a little later, uh, post nicene fathers that took took on testament in the vernacular. So now I've just mentioned the Roman Catholic Church uh, as being the only organization that I know of that includes those uh, Maccabean works. And so, and a lot of the, uh, these, these books that I've mentioned to you that, that are perhaps historic or, or important but not inspired. They're they're known as apocrypha or the hidden, the hidden books, and they weren't considered scripture. But uh, with the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church would later insist on the inclusion of many of these spurious works into their own sort of inspired collection. So uh, this Catholic version of the canon would be imposed as the only acceptable collection in the Western Church for several centuries. And in fact these additions to scripture wouldn't even come to light until the Reformation when scholars of the Greek language, like Erasmus, who himself was a Catholic, uh, began translating the scriptures into a modern Greek version using the Latin Vulgate. And uh, then suddenly the Latin translation of Greek text, which was the primary source text utilized by the Catholic Church, uh, they discovered that there were all of these works that uh, had crept in and were not uh, indeed included in, in some of the the older canon. They would find there are a number of different, the Muratorian canon, the um, the festal letter of Athanasius in, in 367. These scholars, these uh, Reformation, these scholars during the time of the Reformation, leading up to the Reformation and during the Reformation, uh, would make these discoveries and would rightly uh, sort of sift them back out because they had no business being in there in the first place. So now, the same same holds true for the New Testament. So there are a number of books uh, as well in the New Testament. We'll talk about those in a minute. But uh, although for Christians, the issue of the Old Testament canonization was settled by, uh, by its use by Jesus and the apostles, still the Hebrew canon had a distinct set of criteria by which uh, a book was typically accepted into the Tanakh, or what that's the word for Jewish scripture, uh, by Jewish rabbis. Uh, a man named uh, Gerald LaRue gives us a general breakdown of this process in his book, Old Testament Life and Literature. 
and I quote this in the chapter, but uh, I'll, so I'll go ahead and quote it here. It gives four four or four lines of criterion for by which uh, uh, Jewish scholars would deem uh, works to be inspired and not inspired. Basically, it was their own uh, canoniza- uh, canonization or uh, discovery process. But uh, number one, the book must be written in Hebrew, although an exception was made for Aramaic in the book of Daniel, chapters two through seven. Uh, number two, the writing had to be sanctioned by its use within the Jew- Jewish community. And number three, the book uh, must contain one of the great themes of Judaism, such as selection or covenant both of which were uniquely Jewish prior to Christianity and Islam. That's important to note. And then also, although Song of Solomon in a literal reading does not necessarily contain any of the Jewish uh, themes, the key Jewish themes, it was widely accepted as allegorical and therefore the themes could be found by uh, simply applying uh, this literary device. So and then the fourth, uh, the fourth line of criteria from LaRue is that the written work must have been completed by the time of Ezra, which is 445 BC, uh, who was considered the founder of post-exilic Judaism, for historical sake, Ezra was at the very least the preserver of Judaism in a very critical time. Ezra is one of my Old Testament heroes. I think Ezra is just phenomenal. Uh, And oftentimes people look at the um, book of Leviticus and they talk about how how was Moses able to write about his own death? If Moses wrote if Moses wrote Leviticus, which he did, how on earth did he write about his own death? And uh, but it's it's quite simple. Ezra, being an inspired writer and being uh, a an authoritative figure, someone who the Lord gave the uh, care of Scripture to, uh, had the ability to edit and had the ability to tidy things up, if you will, from fragments and chunks and bits and pieces that he had uh, assembled and put together. And so many people believe that Ezra was the one that actually wrote that uh, latter part of uh, Moses' life. And also the passage where it says that Moses was one of the most humble men on the earth. If Moses were to have written that about himself, then that he, he would have been self-disqualified um, in doing so. But uh, Ezra, many people believe Ezra was the one that wrote uh, passages like that pertaining to Moses. So it is fair to mention that among Jewish scholars that there is some debate as to what the exact criteria was and exactly which books were written at what time. But uh, at the time of Christ, all of the works that are included in our Old Testament today were accepted for use by Orthodox Jewish rabbis uh, during Jesus' day. So uh, that's essentially the the Old Testament canonization process. And that for us was uh, fairly straightforward. We, as Christians, uh, we we recognize that Jesus and the apostles quoted from 39 books of the Old Testament and um, God Almighty himself incarnate in the person of Jesus. Quoting from those books is authoritative for us enough to know that those indeed are inspired uh, scripture. So the New Testament canonization process uh, is actually very similar in in many respects to 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 the four areas of the four, four lines of criterion uh, that Larue describes, but uh, it does vary in a couple of a couple of places. But this but the same challenges that uh, were found with the Jewish scriptures existed for the New Testament scriptures as well. Uh, that is basically of all the books and circulations that pertain to the topic of Christianity. They had to figure out which ones were to which ones were actually inspired works of God and which ones were not. 
the Old Testament, we, we basically had to sift out the ancient historical works that were important but not a part of Scripture. But, but now we have <clears throat> a whole new set of challenges facing us, especially in the early church. So for the New Testament, the early church fathers had to find their way you know, through works like the, the Didache or the Shepherd of Hermas, uh, both of which were being used by churches as sort of primers for Christians. Um, but no one seemed to, at any point, consider them inspired or God-breathed works. They were just very important. I, I use the example, when I talk about this, I use the example of John Bunyan's um, Pilgrim's Progress as something that, that kind of is not itself scripture, but is an important work that, that acts as a good primer. Calvinists would, would say the institutes of Christian religion uh, are an important work along those lines. So you would have different works that are still floating around today that are important works, but that are not considered um, scripture in and of themselves. But uh, anyhow, that's, that's the idea. That's the thinking there uh, as far as sifting through which is which. And, and so, you know, they had letters from important first century Christian leaders like Clement that were very helpful and encouraging, but uh, not considered nor used as scripture. Clement's, uh, I think Clement wrote one letter to the Corinthians, but then there were, uh, there were two others, Clement, the second epistle and third epistle, which were considered pseudepigrapha, which is, uh, probably more than likely not him. He was claimed as author, but it was actually written by someone else at a much later time. Uh, but Clement's first epistle, very helpful uh, and very encouraging, but not considered nor used as scripture. And sadly, there are more malicious letters than, than Clement's, uh, than the Clement two and three, but there were groups like the Gnostics or the Manichaeans who were absolutely diametrically opposed to the Orthodox Christian faith. And so they were they were sort of spewing out a lot of really false works and kind of muddying the waters. These supposed ancient letters would be written by a later author who would then claim that they were written by one of the apostles and that they would attempt to pass off that same private work as one of their own authoritative works or by, by one of the apostles. But it, they always carried with them very Gnostic themes and had sort of uh, Gnostic underpinnings. So they kind of used the reputation of the apostles at a much later date uh, to to make it look like these that the, the apostles were endorsing Gnosticism or Manichaeanism and that sort of thing. So, You know, what's interesting is that uh, this wasn't just going on later, but it was actually going on during the days of the apostles. I remember Peter saying that men are writing and speaking, twisting scripture, especially the writings of Paul, because he said, I believe this is in Second Peter, the writings of Paul are difficult to understand, and so these evil men would twist his words yeah. um, and disseminate, whether verbally or in writing, uh, false scripture. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. That um, I, I didn't even think about that, because in my mind, when I think about that scripture, I think men come along who, who twist the word of God, I think verbal, but I, the idea is that, yeah, they definitely will, will take the, the word of God and they'll and they'll twist it uh, to their own uh, condemnation. But uh, yeah, there's a few examples of a few examples of books like these, like the Gospel of Thomas, uh, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Gospel of Judas. Well, the bad thing is that many of the good and bad works circulated along with the inspired writings throughout the first centuries of the church, and that's what caused a lot of great consternation and confusion for many of the uh, early church leaders. You know, which of these works should be 
presented as scripture, which works uh, should be used as helpful, but uh, not scripture, or uh, they wanted to warn Christians about some of these writings that were harmful. Uh, this would lead to a sort of sifting process whereby leaders and laity alike would begin to uncover which of these circulated works were to be separated and collected into a kind of separate uh, biblos, if you will, a biblios of the Word of God, uh, which is where we get the word Bible, collection of books. Uh, they wanted to put them together, make sure that we knew what exactly Scripture was and what, what it was and what we should be copying as Scripture and passing down and what should be separated. So uh, the great thing is, though, we do have a testimony of many of the early church fathers quoted from the books that were considered canon. So that acts as an amazing sort of, po- of an apologetic uh, to the reliability of the New Testament, I think. But it, it has been said that if all biblical manuscripts suddenly disappeared from the face of the earth, we could actually completely reconstruct the entire New Testament just from the quotations given in the numerous writings of these early church fathers, which I think is remarkable. Besides the Jewish faith, there is no other world religion or cult that can come close to a claim of this magnitude. It just baffles the mind. So to give you an idea of a few of the early Christian fathers that quoted from these New Testament books, so you have Ignatius uh, of Antioch, uh, around uh, who lived around 110 AD. He quoted eight of the New Testament uh, books. Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, uh, quoted from 18 of the 27 New Testament books. Irenaeus uh, quoted from 23 of 27 New Testament books. Clement of Alexandria quoted from 22 of 27 New Testament books. Tertullian uh, from 200 AD quoted from 23 of 27. Origen quoted from 24 of 27. And Athanasius, who, uh, Athanasius, who I mentioned, uh, around the time of 367, he quoted from 27 of 27. All 27 New Testament books were quoted in his festal letter. So by 367, we had a pretty good idea of which were uh, which were considered scripture and which were not. Well, so what, let's take a look at this process. So uh, I've, I've put it together in a bit of a, uh, of a mnemonic here. So it's basically a, a tautogram, as they call it, I think, uh, four A's of the canonization process. I'll just run through them quickly and then go back into to each one of them separately. But you have apostolic, the first A is apostolic authority. The second A is antiquity. The third A is, ex, is acceptance. And the fourth A is agreement. So for apostolic authority, it's basically also referred to as apostolicity. Uh, it basically asks, does the written work carry an apostolic authority whereby it was written by either an apostle of Jesus or one of their closest associates? So we have the test of its ap- apostolicity. Uh, that's what the, that's the first. So Matthew and John were basically apostles, whereas Mark was a very close associate of Peter's. Actually, he was also a close associate of Paul's and Barnabas. Uh, but then Luke was also a close associate of, of Paul's. So this is more than just a simple sort of signature within the letter itself. It had to have a long-held and widely reported uh, authenticity to its authorship. Some works had the signature, but were considered spurious uh, because they lacked any credible tie to the apostle purported to have written it. An example of that would be, say, for instance, uh, the Gospel of Thomas. One book that's close to this credible authority, uh, this, this first line of authority, uh, but falls uh, just short is the book of Clement that I mentioned. Um, Clement, he was known to both Peter and Paul, and in fact was probably the Clement that was mentioned by Paul in his letter to the Philippians. Uh, 
Uh, however, Clement was not a close companion nor a close associate to Peter or Paul, so Clement did not quite meet the criteria here for uh, apostolic authority. Um, Ignatius, a very important leader and author of the Apostolic Age, said that he, Ignatius, was not on the level of authority of the apostles, which further confirms the understanding that the apostles of Jesus were clearly on a level of their own with regards to authority. Uh, so that's what we look for. We look for that apostolic authority. The Didache and the Shepherd of Hermas are both considered important, as I mentioned, uh, but they lack this one thing. They don't have apostolic authority or authorship. And uh, it was on this point that they could not be considered scripture and, and were not considered as, uh, scripture. Conversely, as I mentioned, Thomas and Judas were both apostles and certain works were circulated in those days uh, that bore their name as author, but they were uh, clearly and widely rejected as counterfeits or frauds. And uh, that's, of course, where we get the Greek word. That's, that's where we get pseudepigrapha from, the Greek word pseudo. And uh, having passed down through the ages is uh, pseudepigraphal work. So the second A is, would be antiquity. So the, the second method uh, of testing for whether or not a book is to be considered in the canon would be antiquity. One of the methods for smoking out those fraudulent works was the uh, determination of the date of the writing. The, the question that, that basically is asked of each of the texts considered is, does the authorship of this work date back to the time of the apostles themselves? Uh, that is, uh, in other words, 35 to 95 AD, roughly, that, that whole section of the first century. If it didn't date back to that time, in other words, it just popped up on the scene in the second, third, and fourth centuries, it obviously was rejected as... Uh, it, it, as having any uh, apostolic uh, authenticity because it it wasn't circulated in those days. It was never even heard of until a much later date. And so it failed on the point of uh, antiquity. So this should then lead to the follow-up question, how could the church leaders of the fourth century date a particular text? Today, uh, paleography might employ a number of forensic tests to determine an approximate dating for an ancient writing. But uh, at the time that the canon was being discovered and collected, only about 200 to 300 years had passed with reports and, and unbroken teaching to assist the church in the 4th century in determining which texts had actually been circulating since the time of the apostles and which ones were actually newcomers, as I mentioned. Uh, so some of the early church fathers mentioned above, like Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Tertullian, uh, etc., wrote a body of work between them. Uh, that was extensive. And you can find a lot of their works online, actually. Um, and it's um, ccel.org, I think. I may have that wrong, but ccel, it, it's an excellent source for all of these ancient writings where they're, they're put together in PDF form. And uh, you can load those into your Kindle. You can load the, those into, um, well, you might have to do a bit of converting, but I think Kindle does read PDFs. But you can you can have access to to these PDF files and read them on your uh, your iPads or your phone or whatever. That's what I do. I read it on my my tablet and my phone. And uh, and I'm going through uh, the works of Eusebius at the moment, uh, the first church historian. But uh, anyhow, these works are all there. There's a great body of work that they all put together. It's extensive, and uh, they quoted from all the books that uh, we mentioned, the 27 books uh, of Scripture. Uh, and because the 4th century leaders knew when these men had lived, uh, they could therefore verify the antiquity of the books they quoted from. So they knew they were around at the time of Tertullian or Origen. So some of these uh, leaders quoted from these books, that they had a supposed apost apostolic authority, and, and they had the antiquity, yet still 
they were not considered part of the inspired canon, mostly because of the third A in our tautogram, which is acceptance. Now, uh, acceptance is my word, but it's essentially, it's the element of the canonization process that's perhaps the most difficult, if not impossible, element to fabricate. Uh, from the earliest decades of the church, bishops and pastors would look to a written work's use in church liturgy, widespread usage, as, de as a determining factor in its inspired authenticity. They would ask, was this work in widespread acceptance by the church of its time as Holy Scripture? Was, it, was this being passed around? Were people teaching from it? Was it being referred to as Scripture? Was it being used as Scripture in the churches all throughout the Christian world? There was and is an historical record for which letters were in frequent liturgical use and which ones were not. So, I've mentioned Athanasius' festal letter is one of those. So dubious authors might try to fake the authorship, and they might even be able to pull off uh, the dating of their deceptive writings, like the Gospel of Thomas and Gospel of Judas, uh, Apocalypse of Peter and, and, and others. Uh, but they could not fake the historical record of a widespread tradition of usage in churches. They just couldn't do it. And so some works like the Epistle, Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, and the Shepherd of Hermas, they did pass this test because they were in widespread usage, even in a liturgical sense, and therefore might pass uh, in that they were incredibly important uh, Christian primers for Christian discipleship. However, as I've mentioned before, they were not generally accepted as scripture or as inspired and therefore fall short in this and other areas of the canonization criteria. So it is important to mention, though, here that a few of the New Testament authors were not widely circulated and uh, may not have seen as much widespread use uh, as a few of the other books. These were works that remained in extended discussion among uh, bishops and church leaders throughout the fourth century and were perhaps, uh, you know, the last works found to be part of the inspired canon. You know, an example of that would be the book of James was one. Also, uh, the book of Revelation or the Revelation of the Christ, uh, the final book. These were ones that were not necessarily in widespread uh, circulation per se, or in comparison to, say, Thessalonians, which was in very widespread usage, uh, or the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. James and, and Revelation were a couple books that were late in the finalization process, and perhaps that's due to the fact that they weren't as in as much widespread usage as per, as the other uh, as the other books uh, per se. So, but nevertheless, they were found to be part of the inspired canon because they passed on on all other accounts. <clears throat> yeah, Hebrews, Revelation, James. The fourth line of criteria, the fourth A of the tautology is agreement. Now, sometimes this is called orthodoxy or the uh, the final A of the tautology. Basically, it it pertains to a book's agreement with the rest of revealed scripture. You can have a work that has apostolic authority, have a work that has antiquity, but one way or another, if it if it had widespread usage, it more than likely would have failed. If it did not have widespread usage, it would have failed on point number four here, agreement, because if it didn't agree with the rest of scripture, it would not have come into widespread usage. That's just a uh, sort of logical conclusion that can be formed there, but uh, the circulated apostolic letters had a develop had uh, basically developed a uh, a reputation of legitimacy, and they basically were the, were accepted by new churches in new towns, pretty much everywhere, and the the that the letters uh, began to travel. So, and that God is a God of truth; He will never contradict Himself, um, but will be consistent when He speaks 
with all things he has spoken in the past. Uh, the book will be in harmony doctrinally with the rest of Scripture and may even in, uh, receive a quotation from the other books of the New Testament. Uh, we see this in uh, the case of Peter in, in 2 Peter chapter 3 when he speaks of Paul's letters and teachings. This is something that uh, that you've just mentioned was was this scripture itself in, in 2 Peter chapter 3 when, he's, uh, when Peter speaks of Paul's letters and teachings being hard to understand but still received as the wisdom of the Lord himself. Correct. And then again in 1 Timothy 5.18, the Apostle Paul quotes the New Testament author Luke when he says, Muzzle not the ox while he treads out his grain. This is a quotation from the book of Luke chapter 10, verse 7. So ultimately the content of the letter would follow what scholars refer to as an apostolic norm, uh, which demonstrated the authority and unity of the gospel message, which was consistent among the apostles. Many of the pseudepigraphal Gnostic writings uh, fail miserably at this point. And this is, this is one of the, the clear areas where, where uh, red flags basically go up when you're reading the Book of Thomas and some of these other bizarre um, uh, pseudepigraphal works. Uh, they, they, uh, they just get weird in some places. Um, and they fail at the, at the, on the fourth A of... Uh, but, but essentially, so if you take those four A's, so if you take apostolic authority... Antiquity, acceptance, and agreement, the four A's of the canonization process, it's not, a, I, I haven't encapsulated a perfect representation of the process, uh, but those four areas will cover the, the, the major areas whereby we uncovered or discovered which books were considered uh, inspired and which books are, are basically spurious or not inspired. So any thoughts on that, Ken? Well, one thought that came to mind that we might want to anticipate and address is a challenge, and that is this. So somebody might say, okay, so the church fault, one of the criteria was uh, antiquity and or acceptance, and we can accept and we can test these by maybe later church fathers quoting early church fathers or quoting uh, from the New Testament. What I'm wondering is a question that might come up is, sure, maybe the church fathers quoted from what we now accept as our 27 books from the canon, but did they also quote from books that we don't accept as scripture? And so that then they might use that to challenge the idea that just because they quoted from it, that's not necessarily a test of its authenticity. Yeah, because it, it, that's obviously something that could be e easily faked. I mean, it could be just basically quoting from quoting from other books wouldn't necessarily make an agreement, but it's, yeah, on the whole, whether or not it agrees doctrinally, um, foundationally with the rest of what, what God's inspired word has to say. So, right. um, so one last thought, we'll probably leave it with this. I, one of the things a, a popular Bible scholar, you can find his videos on YouTube, uh, Dr. Daniel Wallace, he's probably considered, uh, the foremost scholar in textual criticism and, uh, has some fantastic debates, had a debate with Bart Ehrman and, oh, really? uh, yeah, he, he really is. It's, I'm in a bit of a conundrum with this guy. I like Daniel Wallace. A lot. I just, he's done a lot of really cool things and he just, he seems to have a genuine heart for studying God's word. The problem is, which, which I'll, I'll mention here is that he is, he belongs to the school of thought. I would say James White also belongs to the same school that, uh, that I talk about the four A's of canonization 
Now, this is a, a, a this is a time-honored process. This is a this is a process by which the whole of uh, representatives of the church at that time all uh, came together and uh, and uncovered really what what scripture was. But in the 19th century, with uh, with men like Westcott and Hort, who were liberal scholars, if you will, uh, who came along and uh, basically decided, okay, well. Let's go ahead and figure out from these new texts that have been discovered, the Tichendorf texts, uh, Codex Sinaiticus and, and Alexandrinus and, and that sort of, um, and, and a few of the, the, the other texts that, that had, had begun to emerge in the 19th century. And they said, okay, well, obviously these are older. Therefore, uh, the, we, need, uh, we need to start creating Bible translations that do not include some of these other passages which somehow or another found their way in that shouldn't have been in. Hmm. Uh, so you have a couple of guys that are basically determining for all the rest of us uh, what scripture is and what scripture isn't. So I have an issue with that. Uh, and of course, Daniel Wallace embraces Westcott and Horton. So does James White. They, they both embrace them. Now, I might start to sound like a King James only guy, but I'm not. I do read from the NASB, but I read side by side with the King James Version. I usually, when, in my personal devotion, my personal reading time, I'll read the passage through in the NASB, and then I'll go back and read it through in the New King, or not New Kings, but the King James Version. And uh, we'll have a comparison. And there's a reason for that, because there are two, we, I won't go into it to, today, but there there are two source texts uh, behind each of those different those different uh, English translations, one being the Byzantine or the majority manuscripts being behind the King James Version, and then the minority manuscripts or the Eastern or Alexandrian manuscripts behind the NASB. I like the NASB, but there are some very bizarre, bizarre passages that I, I, I just think it's, it's completely, it completely... Uh, goes in a completely opposite direction of of where of where all the rest of the passage within it uh, belongs. So the, the, the issues on both sides, to be fair, uh, with both the King James and the NASB. So my point is uh, that I'm not a King James only guy, but that I am a Byzantine text guy. I do believe that uh, that this process, whereby we have uh, antiquity apostolicity. Um, we have agreement and we have acceptance. We have all of these things with the Byzantine texts. We have a history of the Byzantine text. We have no history of these two texts that have emerged from, from Africa, and they introduce some very bizarre sort of deletions from the text. So anyhow, uh, talking about one of my issues with Daniel Wallace, but there have been people that have you know, questioned him about this, and he said, well, you know, he makes the claim that orthodoxy could not have existed uh, prior to the closing of the canon. There, there was no Orthodox faith prior to the closing of the canon, um, as there wasn't a rule in place by which to have determined it. But I, you know, I, I disagree with him on that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's important to note that uh, I do respect Dr. Wallace and, and, I, and his work immensely. It's amazing. You should see his YouTube videos. It just It's like montage, like 80s montages of him like uh, on a light table with little chunks of text looking at it in a loop. It's, I mean, it's very romantic. It's like I do respect his work, and I do think that, that – um, and, and, and I will say also I, I like James, work, James White's work as well. I do, uh, I, I do respect his work as well. But I disagree with them on this particular point because... Yeah, and I think you would have to. I mean, 
even even the apostles in the New Testament had some orthodoxy, right? So you you couldn't be a Christian if you denied the resurrection, for example, Correct. right? Correct. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and that's the point that 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 that, that I I wanted to make though, and it's basically um, you know, you have the closing of the canon, which by the way. The closing of the canon didn't take place in 387 when the when the church in, at Rome decided, okay, yeah, this is legit. These uh, 66 books are, are all there is. That's not the closing of the canon. The closing of the canon took place in 95 AD, roughly, when Revelation was penned and written and done. Correct, correct. That was it. You know, the, the, the closing of the canon, which occurred at, at that time, uh, did not then make orthodoxy possible. But rather, it uh, basically solidified and protected the orthodoxy that was already in place to begin with. I think I, it, it basically said, "Here's the scripture on which you can stand." It basically established by the closed Hebrew canon that was in use in the verbal preaching and written words of Jesus and his apostles. It basically protected that. So, go ahead. It, yeah, and here's something else to consider, and this would be something for the Christian. Obviously, the non-Christian's not going to accept this, and you know, we would have something different to say to the non-Christian. But for the Christian, we've got to accept, well, both what Scripture says as well as what we would learn from reasoning. Uh, the Scripture says that heaven and earth will pass away before one word of his word will pass away. And um, you've got to think this. If God took the time to communicate his word to us, which he did, uh, and he's omni- omnipotent and omniscient. He knows how to preserve his word. He knows how to keep it and let it last through the centuries. In the midst of all the tares growing up around it, he can he can preserve that wheat. And so one would think it existed and was completed at the end of the first century, and he preserved it as we uncovered it. Correct. One would, as Christians, we I I think that that's one thing that we need to accept in our faith. Um, but of course, you know, we would want to provide evidences for the non-believer or even, you know, just for our own satisfaction. But um, just as we accept scripture on faith, I think we need to accept that, that God's going to not only communicate his word, but preserve it and keep Correct. it complete as a whole. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. For, further to, to what you were saying, you know, the Apostle Paul had to confront and refute uh, the heresy of the Judaizers. Yeah. And the Apostle John had to write against the heresy of the Gnostics. You know, anybody who does not believe that Jesus come, has come in the flesh uh, is an Antichrist. Right. right. And then finally, you know, Peter confronted a heresy known as uh, simony when, as reported in Acts, he verbally rebuked Simon the sorcerer who sought to pay money uh, for the power given to the apostles, and, and which that power was given to them for the sake of spreading the gospel. So, yeah. you know, uh, the sad thing is that that heresy is still in full swing today in, in many of the false churches. You know, you have the Paula Whites of the world. You have uh, just about any of the word faith guys, just the Kenneth Copelands, the Benny Hens that are still hanging on. You know, a lot of these guys are dying off, and uh, but there's a few that are that are, are hanging on there. The, the Crouches are all gone, but they were big. Uh, and uh, Kenneth Hagen was big in this sort of thing. But yeah, the, uh, this all had to happen in that first century before there was any, the, the closing of the canon. I mean, the canon was still being formed. So uh, yeah, I, so I completely disagree with them on that. They, they couldn't confront these heresies if, you know, if Wallace, as Wallace asserts, no orthodoxy was yet established. So. Correct. The uh, the idea here is that the influx of new believers in the first three centuries it, it, it resulted in equal growth in false believers and false teachers. And in the mid-fourth century, uh, when Athanasius' uh, festal letter was circulated that I mentioned, he, he was giving that letter to tell his bishops, 
here are scriptures that uh, here are books that can be used for scripture. Here are books that are to uh, that are good that are important but are not scripture. And then here are books that which are to be avoided. So you know you have this new dilemma of new, true, and false believers. Uh, you know in mass, which created a fervent necessity among church leaders. You know to be obedient to God's word, which states, "Let no one add to or take away from these words." And that, of course, would have happened ninety-five. That would have those are the that's the closing words of of Revelation, the final book of the Bible. So, we've run out of time this week. On behalf of uh, Dr. Ken Hochstetter, I'd like to thank you for listening into this episode of the Truth for Saints podcast. Please do uh, click the subscribe button so that you know when we have the new episode up. And we look forward to seeing you again right here on the Truth for Saints podcast. Thank you for listening to this podcast provided by truthforsaints.com.